Well, good morning, everybody. Great to be here with you this morning. My name's Mike. I'm the pastor here at Salt Church. Great to have you here with us, especially if you're visiting. Very warm welcome to you if you're here on holidays. It's great that you're here. Uh, you've come at a great morning because after church this morning, I'm heading off on holidays, so you know for sure this is not going to be a long sermon. But it's good that you're here. We're in Psalm 2 if you've got your Bible. Now, Father, we want to thank you that we can meet together this morning. We want to thank you for your word to us. Thank you that we've got this space with the air conditioning on to stop and to listen and to hear you speak. And we pray that you'd do that now, that you'd speak to us, that you'd draw us nearer, that we might come to know you, the true and living God, and that our hearts would be brought in submission to the Lord Jesus, who reigns and rules over all things. Would you help me now to speak in a way that's faithful and clear? For we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, maybe it's just the warmer weather or maybe it's just this time of year. We're out of our normal routines, aren't we? Some of us are even on holidays. There's more people on the roads, more people in the shops, more people at the beach. It's hard to get a park. There's been a rough, it's been a rough few weeks for some of us. Big storms, lots of damage, not much electricity. Following, the searing, following with searing heat and torrential rain. Some of us have been stuck inside with no air conditioning and nowhere to take the kids. There's also been some sickness doing the rounds, general fatigue, a virus or two, and, the over, and just overall exhaustion. Some of your plans and arrangements these holidays have either misaligned, been altered, postponed, or even cancelled. Of course, Christmas has been and gone, and so too are the New Year's celebrations, carrying with them all sorts of unspoken promises and unrealised expectations. Expectations about presents, expectations about people, expectations about patience. Now, I'm gonna, not going to ask you this morning for a show of hands because I don't believe that you'll admit to it, and I don't want to embarrass anyone anyway, but my best guess is that over the last few weeks that you've probably had a run-in with somebody. Not seen eye to eye with them. So you've either let them know it and maybe even let them have it. You've lost your cool, did your block, blew a gasket, flipped your lid, flipped them off, chucked a wobbly, had a tantrum, spat the dummy. You've said things that you shouldn't have said and thought some other things that you didn't say. Gave them a piece of your mind because, well, you stopped using yours and have since relived the drama countless times where that in every replay that's taken place, you were right and you won. When our personal interests aren't being met, when our values and our beliefs and our convictions get crossed, when, we're, when there's issues of authority and structure and power, when there's misunderstandings and misinterpretations, conflict is sure to follow. Conflict isn't just between us. Conflict isn't just within us. Conflict is everywhere. On the 1st of January, when the news reports stopped reporting about New Year's celebrations around the world, it returned to reporting on global conflicts. And global conflicts are happening, well, globally. According to Wikipedia, there is currently major wars in parts of the Middle East, Asia, Africa and Europe. Minor conflicts, wars and skirmishes are active in North America, South America, Asia, Africa and Europe. I've only mentioned the continents because there are far too many countries there to name. But you might want to keep an eye on hotspots like Myanmar, Ethiopia, Eritrea, Yemen, and of course Israel and Palestine. 
the private world of hostility and unbelief waging war on the battlegrounds of Psalm 1, the conflict between the blessed man and the wicked, the sinners and the scoffers, now moves onto the international stage and into the global arena of Psalm 2. We are in our Summer Psalm series called Summer Psalms, and we're looking at the two introductory psalms at the beginning of the book of the psalms themselves, what we call the Psalter. Psalm 1 introduces us to the book's purpose. Psalm 2 to the book's plot. Psalm 1 traces a path through life. Psalm 2 describes the journey that this path traces. Psalm 2 is a four-part drama, a drama that's set in four scenes. So if you're taking notes, here it is. The earth in verses 1 to 3. In heaven, verses 4 to 6. There's a flashback in verses 7 to 9. And then we're on earth again in verses 10 to 12. Earth, heaven, flashback, earth. Psalm 2 introduces us to the main players and all the major characters that appear within the book of Psalms. The Lord, his king, his enemies, and his people. Psalm chapter 1 verse 5 calls the Lord's people the assembly of the righteous. Psalm 2 verse 12 calls the people of the Lord those who take refuge in him. And in each of these four scenes here in Psalm 2, it highlights one of the four characters for us. Their interactions create the drama, which points us towards the climax of the whole book of the Psalms themselves. And the opening scene of this four-part drama now begins on the global stage. Because if Psalm 1 was a quiet and calm and gentle reflection, an invitation to our contemplation of the Word of God, then Psalm 2 is anything but calm. It's aggressive, confrontational, shouty and hostile. The Lord is shirt fronting his enemies. Look there, verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Psalm 2 begins with a question. Why? The Lord is asking why of his enemies. Why all this raging? Why all this restlessness? Why plot in vain? Why contemplate for nothing? The question from God pours direct scorn onto the human project, an attempt to break free from the Lord and his rule. Why? This human endeavour of freedom from the word of God is the exact opposite of meditating on God's word in Psalm 1. In fact, the Hebrew word for meditate in Psalm 1 verse 2 is reused here in chapter 2 verse 1 where it means plot. And so the wordplay makes Psalm 2 a sequel for Psalm 1 where the ultimate enemies of the blessed are now revealed. Psalm 1, the wicked gather to mock the Lord, but now they're swallowed up by this growing gathering. It's a groundswell of moral outrage and indignation. It's broken out amongst the nations who now come together, setting aside their own differences and rivalries. They join together against him, their common enemy. Led by the kings, this united nations gather together. They assemble in radical defiance and hostile protest against this foreign dignitary who they believe has taken their happiness and their dignity and their freedom and their autonomy, that it's been stripped from them. These people, they don't rage against the machine, they rage against God. And rage is more than just a music TV program on the ABC. 
God promised his people rest. Rest from all of their enemies. But the idea of rage is restlessness. Rage is the polar opposite of rest. The nations are restless. The kings are restless. The world, restless. Don't you feel it too? Restless. But have a look at who it is that they're up against in verse 2. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. <clears throat> they stand in opposition to the Lord and his anointed. They stand opposed to his anointed one. Why? Why indeed? What are the nations thinking? See how outnumbered this contest really is. In verse 1, the image moves across the earth's hostile plains. It's like a camera, yeah? And it shows us a vast ocean of warriors from horizon to horizon. God's enemies are countless and without number. But in verse 2, the image now moves to heaven. And there we see a distant figure enthroned in glory. And that's where our second scene now begins in heaven where the Lord is gloriously enthroned. See it with me, won't you? Verse 4. He who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. God's voice, it silences the nations. His angry laughter is at their defiance, his scorn at their attempted coup, his wrath at their proposed rebellion against him. Just to hear the voice of God is to be terrified and filled with fear and dread. What were the nations thinking? Why rage and plot against the Lord? But when the Lord stops laughing at them, when the Lord finally addresses them, his words are terrifyingly anticlimactic. See there again, verse 4. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. It's so definitive, isn't it? Such a statement of fact. It's almost a massive understatement. But really, it's an overstatement. You see, at the very pinnacle, at its very pinnacle, the lofty heights of Israel's kingdom over Zion, it only exercised control and sovereignty of about seven or eight local kingdoms. Zion never once challenged the global, true global powers of the Egyptians or the Mesopotamian empires. And by the time all the Psalms were compiled together as we have them, and Psalm 1 and 2 written as the introduction, there was no king over Judah. Judah had been made subject to the Babylonians. Which makes Psalm chapter 2 verse 6 a bit of an overstatement unless it's to be understood prophetically. A vision of the final judgment that's still to come which is what Psalm 1 alluded to. The prophecy of God's king set on Zion is based on God's promises to King David and you can see them with me on the screen behind me 2 Samuel 7 verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. 
Psalm 2 takes God's promises seriously. It understands that forever means forever. An eternal kingdom means exactly that, friends, an unconquered, everlasting kingdom. But here's the rub. Israel's history is one long list of failed kingdoms. A story of failed kings and of a captured kingdom, a history of conquered and the collapsed. Which, like it did in Psalm 1, now places enormous strain, doesn't it, on the distances between our reality and our expectations. It also creates a tension between God's promises and the lived experiences of God's people. Psalm 1 is about a righteous person. Psalm 2 is about an entire nation. Psalm 2 fills out the message of Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 is telling us we're not alone. Your own decision to follow after Jesus, to hear his call on your life, to walk in his footsteps after him, catches us up, sweeps us up into a divine and cosmic drama spanning the courses of time and space. It tells us that our struggles to faithfully endure as disciples day in and day out, as individuals, as families, as a church community, that our pursuit of the Lord Jesus himself, that it's all part of a bigger story and a much grander narrative. And it's a reality that can only be seen and understood from God's sovereign perspective, from the Lord's heavenly outlook, enthroned in heaven. Together, these two Psalms, Psalm 1 and 2, they assure us that our walk together after the Lord's anointed, that we now belong to a great nation. We're not alone. Our third scene in Psalm 2 is a flashback. And it takes us back to the coronation when the Lord's anointed became king. Here the king himself now speaks and he invites us to be witnesses to his royal enthronement. Hear him for yourself there, it's in verse 7. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. The language here is not familiar to us but it's found in official historical records of many ancient nations. It's called the Lord's Decree and it speaks of the king adopting someone else to be his heir when there is no son, when there is no heir apparent. These legally binding words turn an ordinary commoner into a monarch. But in Psalm 2, this king didn't simply inherit the kingdom of Israel as his only coronation gift. No, see it with me there in verse 8. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Not just the kingdoms of Israel, but of all the kingdoms and of all the nations and all the peoples. The ends of the earth are his to possess. The whole world belongs to him. But no sooner having meekly inherited the earth does this king now smash them all into pieces. Why? Who breaks their own inheritance? Seems like a reckless act with something so precious, doesn't it? But you'll remember now the opening scene of Psalm 2. A raging world in defiance. 
united by its uproar. The Son has inherited the whole world, but the world has risen up in rebellion against his King. And so only that which has been shattered, friends, ever has the ability to be restored and repaired. Psalm 2 has already shown us that our faithfulness makes us part of something bigger than ourselves. But it also shows us that the wicked of Psalm 1, they will not stand in the final judgment. Psalm 2 describes the final judgment for us. The son who is now the everlasting king of the world breaks and dashes them all into pieces. And while the language here is of father and son, God, God captures God's capturing these things by his promises to David. The description is hardly a, one that would fit David at all, is it? This description of the king here in Psalm 2, it doesn't fit David. In fact, Saul's armour probably fitted better, than David, better, than, better on him. But this description of this king, it fits David's son perfectly. Jesus of Nazareth. And the gospel writers make this plain. The New Testament writers claim this to be true. And their entire claim rests on just one event. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. By his resurrection from the dead, Christ has universally smashed all powers and all authorities. His resurrection is now the guarantee that the power of sin and death has been destroyed completely. The resurrection event witnessed by hundreds not only saw the empty tomb but saw those talk and eat and walk with the risen Lord as well. The resurrection victory over all hostile opposition not only marks the promise of his impending return but that his people, his people, will now share in his inheritance with him. A promise that Jesus made to his church. Revelation chapter 2 verse 26, see it with me. The one who conquers and who keeps my word until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron and when earthen, ves- and when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father. We will share in his inheritance with him your future has just been revealed to you but Psalm 2 ends with a final scene on earth a a warning that now comes from the voice of the narrator himself to oppose the son is to stand in opposition to his father to reject the king is to reject the Lord so here is warning it's pretty important verse 10 Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. (coughs) Rather than accelerating their imminent demise and escalating this conflict further, the enemies of God are now invited to a truce. But it is a truce strictly on the Lord's terms. There is no room here for negotiation. This is their final warning. So the smart thing to do for God's enemies 
is to lay down your arms, to bring an end to all of your hostilities, to stand down from your uprising, to put an end to all of this silly nonsense. Bow down in submission to the king of all kings. See his words there? Kiss the feet of the son. Seek now your refuge in him. If you continue to persist in your opposition, if you're continuing to your, in your rage and you're plotting against the Lord to get what you want, to be autonomous, see it now. He will be angry with you. And so the warning there in verse 12, it's clear enough, isn't it? You will perish in your way. Your way will lead to destruction. Blessed is the man, says Psalm 1, who delights in the word of God. Blessed are all, says Psalm 2, who take their refuge in him. As we strive to walk his way, we'll face opposition and discouragement. Conflict, friends, is everywhere. You see, the opposition that we now face for walking the path of faithfulness with Jesus, it's not really directed at you. But it's an opposition that's squarely aimed at the Lord and his King. The Lord has made your faithfulness in pursuing him so obvious that even his enemies can see it now. And while I know personally that that never feels great, blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2 reminds us of three great things. You're not alone. Your future has been revealed. And opposition means that God is working through you. According to the Psalms, this is the pathway through life. This is the journey the King invites us to walk with Him on. We're called to be Christ followers. Our call in walking this path of faithfulness, it's the very same path that our king himself walked down on his way to being crowned as their king. The rulers of Israel raged against him. Jesus, rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes because they plotted against him. But all of their plotting and their rage was in vain because three days later he rose again. This four-part drama in Psalm 2, based on God's promises to King David in 2 Samuel 7, comes to you this morning with an invitation. The invitation to join the kingdom of the Son. And if you've already done that, then here's your moment to refocus your pursuit of him in the year ahead. No point plotting and planning. No point raging when you don't get your own way. Why? Asks Psalm 2. Besides, you can never gain the whole world when Jesus has already inherited it all anyway. And now he invites you to share in his inheritance and to belong to his kingdom, a kingdom that lasts forever and ever. Friends, our journey in the pursuit of Jesus starts right here. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, 
But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, when we see a world of chaos and brokenness, when we experience ourselves in a broken and fallen world, when things aren't as they should be, whether it's our health or the things that we've come to rely on and depend upon, the creaturely comforts that we've grown to know and like, we're reminded again that we are not in control. But we thank you that you are. And so we pray this morning that we would hear the invitation to seek our refuge in Jesus, to look to him, to follow after him, to pursue him despite opposition, despite the fact that we sometimes feel alone, despite the fact that our moments and these things of confusion trip us up and we don't know where we're heading, we thank you that you've revealed our, your, our future to us, that we will share in your inheritance forever. So Lord, we pray this morning that you'd help us as we leave this place to bring into realignment our plans, our aims, our goals, our hopes, whatever it is that we have set in store for the year ahead. Would you help us to come and bring all these things in submission to Jesus, to once again to submit ourselves to him and to kiss the king that you've made Lord of all. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.